has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This manifesto of freedom and liberation through the Christ event uh, is the uh, light, the leading uh, motif of the letter to the Galatians. And what I'd like to do in the presentation this evening is uh, run through the letter, highlighting the passages uh, that are relevant to the understanding of what Paul means for the freedom uh, in which, for which Christ has set us free, <clears throat> excuse me, and what kind of slavery he has in mind uh, in contrast. The reason this is so interesting, I think, uh, is that in our American culture, we have a modern tradition of freedom, uh, political freedom, uh, freedom uh, from uh, monarchies, um, freedom from dictators, civil freedoms, I guess you could call them. Uh, and I think it's an open question if that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about freedom. In any case, before we too quickly assume that what we mean by freedom is what Paul means by freedom, I'd like to take a deep dive through Galatians and see if we can come up with some ideas about this. A second reason why this is important, I think culturally, is that in the last several decades, a whole bunch of philosophers particularly former Marxists who have lost their faith in Marxism-Leninism and are searching for a new vision of freedom and a new model of freedom, how to live a free life under objectively oppressive conditions, have discovered this in the figure of the Apostle Paul. I've written about this in some of my books, and I, I don't intend to discuss that any further than to mention it. Uh, but Paul, whose reputation in the church can be somewhat mixed at times, is being rediscovered by the most unlikely people, especially continental European philosophers who used to be Marxists and are looking for a new kind of human subjectivity, the power to live freely in objectively oppressive conditions. So I think all of these things lead to an interest in um, what Paul means by freedom. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Paul begins his, this letter to the, to the Galatians with a greeting unlike any of his other letters. Typically, he gives praise and thanksgiving for the people, uh, the, the people that he's addressing in the letter. Uh, with a theologically uh, pointed benediction, he begins Galatians, which introduces the apocalyptic, the word antinomy is used by J. Lewis Martin, whose commentary on Galatians I largely follow. And antinomy is a radical opposition. And apocalyptic means that this is a historical uh, antagonism between the present evil age and the now intervening new creation of God. Uh, so let's take a look at that. Next slide. David, would you read that, please? Sure. 
Uh, Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the members of God's family who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Okay, two Amen. things to notice about this greeting, other than the fact that there's no thanksgiving uh, for the faith and love and loyalty of the Galatians, uh, is that Paul immediately accentuates his apostolic authority, not by human commission nor by human authorities, but uh, the word that he's going to use in Greek is by apocalypse, by revelation, the revelation of the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, which uh, Paul talks about in chapter two, which immediately commissioned him to be the messenger of Christ, the risen Christ, to the non-Jewish nations, to the Gentiles, right? That's Paul's uh, source of commission. So that suggests to us that somehow Paul's authority as an apostle is being challenged or questioned. And then go to verse four again. Look, here's this apocalyptic antinomy or radical antagonism that he gave himself for our sins to set us free. There's the first sounding of the theme of freedom, to liberate us, to set us free from the present evil age. So for Paul, Paul in Paul's way of thinking, uh, and J. Lewis Martin, the commentator, puts it this way, in the cross and resurrection of Christ, God has invaded this present evil age and defeated it in principle and is now active in it, uh, liberating people wherever and whenever the good news of this act of liberation in Christ is being proclaimed. Okay, next slide, please. Paul transitions immediately after this strange beginning with no thanksgiving for the faith and love and loyalty of the Galatians, transitions immediately to the danger he sees developing in his congregations in the province of Galatia. I call these uh, people interlopers because Paul had established the Christian congregations of Galatia. He was their apostolic uh, father. Uh, and later he compares himself to a nursing mother or a, a mother in, in pregnancy, uh, trying to, still trying to give birth to the Galatians. So he has a lot of investment in the Galatian congregation who is his ministry created. But these interlopers have come after him claiming better credentials, saying that Paul is half credential and that he's given them half a gospel. They want the Gentile, the Galatians are all Gentiles, none of them are Jews. They want the Gentile Galatians to complete their conversion by undergoing circumcision. In other words, implying that Paul provided an incomplete conversion. In fact, their claim to complete the gospel with circumcision 
Paul is going to argue stands for another gospel entirely. Why is that? Because it's no longer the grace alone of Christ alone received by faith alone, but a quid pro quo in which God does his part and human beings do their part. So it goes from being good news to a good deal. And Paul thinks that's a complete departure from the radical grace of Christ. Okay, let's go. Next slide. David, if you would. Sure. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we proclaim to you, let that one be accursed. As we have said before, so now I repeat, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let that one be accursed. Now this passage of course gives some offense to modern people because he's calling down an anathema on, an, on other gospels. But let's notice here that Paul puts himself under the same anathema. Even if we should proclaim a gospel contrary, let, let that, therefore let me be accursed. So Paul puts himself under the same standard of judgment, which he is applying to the interlopers. He's denying that there is another gospel. And he's saying that this uh, different gospel of the interlopers is a perversion of the gospel of Christ. Now, what, what really is this about? It's about defecting from the one who called you. Look at verse six, the one who called you in the grace of Christ. And we'll see substantively, that's what it's all about. It's substantively, not just that Paul is orthodox and the others are heretics or some uh, idea like that, it's rather that there's one gospel that calls by grace and any other gospel which adds something to this, adds something to the grace of Christ is not an, another gospel of it at all. It's a perversion of the gospel. Let's continue, please. We get our first hint of what Paul means by freedom in this passage following. Paul has been liberated from people pleasing. He has been liberated to be a God-pleaser. He will sacrifice neither his conscience nor intellect to any other creature in heaven and earth because in his conscience, because his conscience is captive to the word of God, as his mind is to thinking about the implications of God's liberating act in Christ. If you recognize in this what I've written here, an echo of Martin Luther's stand. Uh, at the Diet of Worms, you're very perceptive. His conscience is captive to the word of God. His loyalty, his um, fear, love, and trust above all is to the word of God that has been spoken to him originally on the Damascus Road, the calling by grace of the risen Christ, which turned his life around and made him who was a persecutor of the early Jewish Christians into a proclaimer of the grace of Christ to all the nations. <clears throat> so when we think about what freedom really means, 
I think here we begin to see that there's a difference from political freedom. Uh, political freedom means freedom from the coercive uh, power of the state being uh, applied to us unjustly or tyrannically. Nothing wrong with political freedom. But Paul means something, I think, rather deeper. He's no longer a people pleaser. He has become a God pleaser. Let's look at how Paul describes that. Next passage, David, please. Am I now seeking human approval or God's approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul has just demonstrated, he thinks, uh, by putting himself along with others under an anathema if they should deviate from the gospel of the grace of Christ, uh, that he is not a people pleaser. He's not trying to flatter the Galatians. In fact, he's confronting the Galatians with their defection from their calling, right? And now he has to transition actually to make an argument once again against the interlopers who are implying that Paul has a derivative of apostolic authority and that they, by contrast, have much better credentials coming from the authorities in Jerusalem, coming from people who walked and talked with Jesus. But here Paul is saying, uh, I had these connections, I had these contacts, I had these human relationships, but that's not the source. I was, I received my gospel through last verse here, 12, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, that Greek word is apocalypse, an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That's what, how Paul is interpreting what he saw on the road to Damascus, that the risen Christ reached in to his uh, sinful and spiritually proud existence as a persecutor and knocked him off his high horse and turned his life around and made him who despised Gentiles and wanted to build a fence between Jews and Gentiles to preserve the purity of the people of God and turned Paul instead into an ambassador of the risen Christ to those very Gentiles whom previously he had despised. Next slide. Now I'm gonna skip a lot of very interesting historical material. Paul gives a long autobiographical section in chapter one and two, culminating in Paul's account of his face-to-face -face confrontation with Peter, the apostle Peter, Peter had eaten with the Gentiles in Antioch until, for fear of the circumcision kosher party, he separated from sharing table with them. Of course, that would have been offensive to the Gentile Christians in Antioch who had eaten with Peter up until then, but now Peter has 
in Paul's language, hypocritically turned his back on them in order to please be a people pleaser, to please the people from Jerusalem who have come to check them out. Here Paul states the argument for justification by faith on the grounds that it does not make the cross of Christ superfluous, but rather the radical act of divine grace which liberates. Now we often today hear a lot about social interpretations of Paul's gospel, that it's about inclusiveness as, as opposed to exclusiveness. And there's a certain amount of truth in that, of course, that Paul does open up, see his, the gospel opening up the God of Israel's grace to all the nations and so forth. Certainly that's true. But that's not the argument Paul in fact makes. The argument that Paul in fact makes is that freedom or liberation is dependent upon an event. And that event is the cross of the Son of God. The cross of the Son of God is the radical act of divine grace, which actually sets people free to be God-pleasers and no longer to be people-pleasers. Next slide, please. David, if you would. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself for me. And do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Thank you, David. I used here the King James Version because it translates a particularly interesting passage in a way that perhaps we are not familiar with anymore. I'm referring uh, uh, to the... Uh, uh, verse uh, 18, the last clause, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of law. And if you go down to verse 20, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, the Greek expression, pistos to Christo, is ambiguous in the way that Possessive or genitive constructions can be ambiguous. Does literally faith of Christ, does that mean the faith which Christ himself has or lives? Or does it mean the faith which goes to Jesus Christ, that believes in Jesus Christ? Uh, more recently, it's been translated faith in Jesus Christ rather than faith of Christ or faith of the Son of God. I think Paul was probably pretty comfortable with this ambiguity. He liked the double meaning. Uh, but I think the sense of it is far better when we take it in the sense, the English sense of the King James trans, uh, translation. 
Paul is stressing that the cross of Christ is a event. It's an event which liberates. It's an event which sets people free. And that can't happen if it's just the dumb fact that Christ was executed by the Roman Empire. No, the obedience of Christ in his death on the cross, the faithfulness or the fidelity of Christ, um, his surrender in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, to the will of God, that he should fulfill the double love commandment by giving himself up uh, in trust to his father uh, and giving himself over to death for the sake of his human neighbors, both friends and enemies. That sense of the obedience of Christ, the actual fidelity, faithfulness, and personal faith of Christ, that's what makes his death on the cross a liberating event. That's why Paul can say uh, the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That turns the passion into an action. It's not just a terrible faith that overtook Jesus, but in the very event of the crucifixion, the Son of God is loving and giving himself for me and for all others. Okay? So, and then verse 21, Paul then says, uh, concludes, um, if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. Christ died to no purpose. But of course, that's a, a contrafactual. Of course, Christ died to a purpose. He gave himself for our sins. Remember from verse, uh, the verse at the very beginning? Uh, uh, he gave himself to set us free from the present evil age. He gave himself for our sins. So Paul now, in turning to chapter 3, is going to be discussing how the cross is the liberating event which sets people free. Next slide. Paul deeply delves into the cross of Christ as the liberating deed which brings the spirit of God to do battle against the unbelief of human self-reliance, which is how I paraphrase his expression of the flesh. Uh, next slide, please. Go ahead, David, please. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so many things in vain, if it really is in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you or do so by works of the law, or by hearing with faith. Thus Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul here is appealing to the Galatians' own experience, and of course this is a little bit opaque, a little bit mysterious to us. Just what happened when they received the Spirit by hearing with faith? Uh, and what does this reception or gift of the spirit mean. Um, Paul is appealing to their own Christian experience that the spirit uh, has been given to them on the basis of faith and faith alone. 
and he makes a, an antinomy, a, a radical antagonism. Do you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then he concludes this argument from their experience by appealing to the great patriarch, Abraham, the first uh, of the great patriarchs, ancestors of Israel, and the famous passage in Genesis 15, where Abraham is said to have believed God's promise, and this faith in the promise was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so here Paul is saying, look, uh, there is continuity in God's ways with humanity, going back to Father Abraham, to whom the gospel was preached beforehand. Uh, Abraham, too, uh, entered into a new relationship with God uh, by faith, apart from the works of the law. So what all this means and why it's important, we'll consider next. Let's go on. The reference to Abraham is important for two reasons. First, the interlopers undoubtedly appealed to Genesis 18. That's three chapters after Genesis 15, where the passage, and God reckoned his faith to Abraham as righteousness, occurs. In Genesis 18, Sometime later, the first circumcision of Father Abraham occurred. So what was it that uh, brought Abraham into his relationship with God? Was it um, faith or was it circumcision? So Paul is introducing the promise to Abraham and Abraham's faith and faithful obedience to the promise as an antithesis to this act of circumcision. Second, Paul has discovered within the Torah, within the Torah, an internal tension between the history of promise initiated with Abraham and his representative faith in the promise by which God regarded him as righteous. That's on the one side. The Torah is uh, a history of promise. On the other side, within the Torah, is the history of the works of the law, which is subsequent to, and in some definite tension with God's gratuitous initiative in the promise. So Paul discovers an antinomy within the Torah, not over against the Torah as a whole, but he discovers an antinomy within the Torah between blessing given by promise to faith and curse, which falls upon all who fail wholly to fulfill the law of works. And that's what now is uh, going to be discussed as we go on. Let's go to the next slide. Go ahead, David. So then those who are men of faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no man is justified before God by the law, for he who through faith is righteous shall live. But the law does not rest on faith, for he who does, for he who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree 
that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Okay, notice once again how the passage concludes with the promise of the Spirit through faith, uh, and how that is actually delivered uh, to uh, real human beings. And the antinomy now is being uh, argued exegetically on the basis of the Torah. All of these uh, verses in quotation marks, uh, almost all of them come from the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, the, other, uh, the one he who through faith is righteous shall live comes from Habakkuk. But the others of them, other verses here, all come from Deuteronomy. And I think it's important to observe here that Paul is actually a pretty careful reader of the book of Deuteronomy. It is emphatically the case, according to the book of Deuteronomy, that everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them will be cursed. And blessing is promised only to the obedient, and a serious curse is threatened. Paul is actually a very good reader of the book of Deuteronomy. This is a very careful reading of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy concludes with a covenant ceremony in which blessings and curses are dramatically to be pronounced. And this, these warnings are taken, are taken uh, literally from the book of Deuteronomy, as is also the last quotation, cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. Uh, and that, of course, for Paul, is a veiled reference to Christ crucified. And that is why Paul can conclude, how is it that Christ is a liberator? How is it possible that Christ sets people free? Answer, he who knew no sin was made to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm quoting 2 Corinthians. Here. But the idea here is typical of Paul. Uh, Christ, innocently out of love and in obedience to God, took upon himself the curse which lawfully falls upon all the disobedient. And in taking that, he overthrows the power of the law, which has unjustly condemned and crucified him, uh, who is in fact uh, though it's hidden uh, uh, under the appearance of an abandoned, rejected, and dying man, who has in fact been the one righteous man, the one who has truly fulfilled the intention of the law, loving God above all by loving others more, even more than himself. Next passage, please. Now, one of the most difficult, but also interesting passages follows in which Paul apparently distances the giving of the law on Mount Sinai from God, saying that it was instead mediated by angels to serve as a pedagogue or custodian until the promise of Abraham should be delivered in the fullness of time to all people. Next slide. Paul's meaning here may, be, may reflect a second temple Jewish idea that God assigned the governance of many nations and peoples to various angels, angelic powers, each of which developed 
its own set of, that's a mistake, regulations corresponding to their cultural particularities. What is brand new is Paul's hint that the law of Moses also belongs in the same category. It's a positive law given specifically to the children of Israel. But all of these powers, uh, angelic powers, Paul now regards as enslaving powers, which have now been undone by the breakthrough of the new creation in Christ, which has liberated from their grip. Okay, yes, please read this passage. Why then? Why then? It was added because of transgressions till the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was ordained by angels through an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given, which could make alive, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture consigned all things to sin. That will that what was promised to faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed, so that the law was our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you all, you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. See what's so interesting about this passage is that if you go back to verses 19 and 20, uh, this idea uh, that I think was current in Second Temple Judaism, that God had assigned uh, governance of the nations to various angels. And these angelic powers mediated um, laws, regulations, uh, in order uh, to keep people from uh, inordinate violence and to regulate them. And here he's implying a little bit suggesting softly that the law of Moses is also such a ethnically specific law. It's a law for the Jews. This is where Luther gets his idea that the book of Leviticus and the regulations and numbers and so forth are the Jewish Sachsenspiegel, the Jewish uh, uh, traditional case law, something like that, uh, to be distinguished from the moral law or the natural law. Uh, and then Paul is saying it doesn't matter whether it's Jewish law or Roman law or Greek law, if the law could make alive, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But this now he speaks here of scripture, scripture, not the law, but the scripture consigns all to sin uh, so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the law has this custodial effect. The Greek word here is pedagogus, um, which uh, uh, we can translate as a pedagogy or something like that, but it really has a harsher connotation. Uh, it's keeping people in line with the stick 
keeping people in line with the stick, the way um, the slave who was assigned to escort the children to their lessons and make sure they do their homework was given a rod to discipline. So it's not a very pretty picture that Paul is painting here. Uh, but now faith has come, he says, we are no longer under any such custodians. Now I want you finally to notice here, 27 and 28, that freedom for Paul is social. Freedom for Paul is social. You, if you've been baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ, and the old uh, identity markers, the old uh, identity politics are abolished. There's no longer ethnic distinctions like Jew and Greek. There's no longer economic distinctions like worker and boss. There's no longer uh, gender oppositions. I think this passage should be translated, there's neither married nor single, but that's another issue. The point here is that in the community of Christ, governed now by the gift of the spirit, you've been put into a new kind of society, as we will shortly see, where you are set free to love. And if that's the case, then you are Abraham's offspring because what was promised to Abraham is now being realized in your new life together. Next slide. Carefully note here how Paul juxtaposes the self-revealing and humanly liberating act of God in Christ in the Trinitarian way, in opposition to the enslaving powers and principalities. Next slide. Go ahead, David. So with us, when we were children, we were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So through God, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were in bondage to beings that by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. See again here how this interpretation of the... Um, powers and principalities, the elemental spirits of the universe um, is I think in the background of Paul's thinking here. He's talking to people who were formerly Gentiles and he's saying, when you lived as Gentiles, you were had a pedagogue, you had a custodian, a harsh taskmaster uh, <clears throat> who's uh, who enforced upon you certain roles and niches in a social structure which was oppressive and unjust. And he raises here a really deep question. Why do you want to go back to slavery? Why do you want to go back to slavery? This is reminiscent of the book of Exodus when the murmuring children of Israel in the wilderness, I love the old King James version, hankered after the flesh pots of Egypt. They were tired and sore of the 
rigors of the Exodus journey to freedom and wanted to go back to the comforts of being enslaved. And I think one of the deepest and most profound questions raised by the letter to the Galatians is this, why do we desire our own subjugation? Why do we desire our own enslavement? What security do we find there as opposed to the fresh clean air of faith and all the risks of love that that involves? Now, in the middle of this notice, that Paul is not talking about anything other than what the Galatians have actually experienced in their conversion to the gospel. God has sent the spirit of his son into our, note the plural, our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you see the God of the gospel is the spirit, the son, and the father in this uh, articulation of their advent. I know this Bible study doesn't have a lot to do with Advent in July, but here we can talk a little bit about Advent, that God, Advent means the coming close, the coming near. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's freedom. That is the glorious liberty of the children of God. You're not slaves any longer. Romans 8, God has not given you a spirit of timidity to fall back into fear, but a spirit of sonship and boldness and braveness, courage, right? Okay, let's go on to the next slide. Having made his case for the necessity of the crucified Christ to bring into effect the glorious liberty of the children of God, Paul, as it were, ups the ante and makes the conflict with the interlopers radical, either or, Next passage. Uh, you who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the spirit by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. This is a very important passage to understand the conflict between the call of grace of Christ in the gospel and the works of the law as two antithetical ways that cannot be synthesized. Why? Because it makes very clear that Paul's point has nothing to do with ethics. Let me repeat that. Paul's point has nothing to do with ethics. For through the spirit by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That means, that's a very powerful statement. Paul is saying we are righteous by faith, but we're not yet righteous in sight, in reality, in our own experience. So we have a hope of a coming transformation that will, uh, to which we in this life continue step by step to progress, maybe two steps forward, one step back. We live in a hope of righteousness that is yet to be fully fulfilled. And how do we live in that hope of righteousness step by step in this life? Under objectively still oppressive conditions. We have to bear this in mind. Just because Paul is not talking about political freedom the way Americans understand that typically, 
but is talking about something different, about a liberating event of God and a gift of God in the person of the spirit that transforms human subjectivity, a total transformation of human affects, right? Then ethically, what matters is that faith work, works through love, operative through love. So the old religious uh, antinomy between the circumcised and the uncircumcised is passe. It's not that it just disappears or that it's abolished uh, literally, but it no longer counts. It no longer measures anything. The only thing that measures, the only thing that counts now is faith working through love. And that of course is because having received by faith the spirit, the love of God is attested uh, in our hearts uh, and the hope that inspires and the work that, that empowers in the present objectively oppressive conditions. Next slide. Here's a little reference to Lutheran theology. Paul does not teach the so-called third use of the law. If you remember your Lutheran theology, the first use is the political use, which God uses the pedagogue, the custodian use uh, to keep people in line so that they don't utterly destroy themselves. The coercive political use of the law. The second use of the law is the spirit's use of the law to convict us of our sinfulness and need for grace. And then the so-called third use of the law was whether the uh, the law of Moses or the Ten Commandments now should operate as a guide for Christian life. Paul doesn't teach this. I just pointed out that Paul is not talking about ethics. Paul's ethics of love are certain and, and undeniable. Uh, but what Paul teaches is what I prefer to call a second use of the gospel. If the first use of the gospel is to justify by faith alone and Christ alone on the model of Abraham, who believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. The second use of the gospel is to deliver the spirit, the Holy Spirit, for newness of life. So you see, this is the text behind Martin Luther's famous treatise on the freedom of the Christian. What is Christian freedom? Answer, it is the freedom to love. Let's look at the next passage from Galatians. Go ahead, David. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If however you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit, what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not subject to the law. Verse 18, if you are led by the spirit, you are not subject to the law. That's why Paul does not teach a third use of the law. What he does teach, and in an ethically pronounced and powerful way, is the spirit-given freedom to love. Now, let's just think about that wonderful thought, the freedom to love. Because when I am a people pleaser, 
What I'm concerned about is me, myself, and I. Will other people like me? Will I be accepted? Will I get along? It's me, 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 always at the center of attention. But if you've been set free from self-concern by the gift of the Spirit, convincing you of the love of God in Christ, making you an adopted child of God, you are liberated from such self-concern and therewith also from the need to be a people pleaser. In fact, you can be a truthful person, a person who speaks the truth in love, and that is what is pleasing to God. And that love is radical because you love your neighbor as yourself and so forth. That means you love people <clears throat> uh, with this, the kind of love that God has shown for you on the model of Christ's agape love, this gracious love that regards you as valuable in spite of the ways in which you've dishonored yourself by your former existence and so forth. Okay, let's go on. Next passage. At the end of the letter to the Galatians, Paul once again articulates this rather radical either or, the apocalyptic antinomy. The Israel of God belongs neither to Jew nor to Gentile, but includes both wherever and whenever the new creation has grasped hold of bound beings and set them free to love. This is Paul's canon, his rule of faith for the churches. That Greek word canon, which we are mostly familiar with the canon of the Bible or something like that. Paul uses this Greek word canon in the final passage in Galatians 6. And it's his articulation of the rule of faith in all the churches. This is what Paul expects the existence of the spirit endowed Christian community of the liberated children of God. This is what he expects of them. Next passage. May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. As for those who will follow this rule, peace be upon them and mercy and upon the God, the Israel of God couple of interesting things about this passage. Verse 14, notice, again, the radical apocalyptic antinomy. The world has been crucified to Paul. Paul has died with Christ to the principalities and powers, the elemental spirits, the weak beggarly powers governing this universe with all their identity politics of one sort or another. Uh, all that is passe. There's neither Greek nor Jew, no slave nor free, no male and female. But a new social reality has been created. You are all one in Christ by baptism into him. If you've put on Christ, you are living into this new society where the old antagonism between circumcision and uncircumcision has ceased to count for anything. What counts is the invading new creation. And that is the, trans, the word translated rule. That is Paul's canon. That is Paul's canon and, and upon which he pronounces a final blessing. Peace be upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. 
Notice here too that Paul does not equate the Israel of God with the circumcision. Going back to Father Abraham, to whom the promise of blessing for all peoples, for all nations was given, the true Israel of God is the one that mediates this blessing, this curse free blessing of God upon all peoples. Uh, next, pass, uh, next slide, please. Okay, and we conclude with uh, this uh, question, David. I'll ask you to read this. What knowledge of God or theology does the epistle of freedom yield? And this is a quotation from Martin Luther God is the God of the humble, the miserable, the afflicted, the oppressed, the desperate, and of those who have been brought down to nothing at all. And it is the nature of God to exalt the humble, to feed the hungry, to enlighten the blind to comfort the miserable and afflicted, to justify sinners, to give life to the dead, and to save those who are desperate and damned. For he is the almighty creator who makes everything out of nothing. In the performance of this, his natural and proper work, he does not allow himself to be interfered with by that dangerous past, the presumption of righteousness. Sorry, sorry. There should be pest. Oh, with that dangerous pest, the presumption of righteousness, which refuses to be sinful, impure, miserable, and damned, wants to be righteous and holy. Yes. So that's the kind of God you have in the God of the Gospel, the one who sends the Spirit of His Son into our humble, miserable, afflicted, oppressed, and desperate hearts, so that we the adopted children of God may cry, Abba, Father. All right, thank you very much for your attention. That concludes my presentation.